Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Scottsdale Saturday Big Book Study, where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Maria F., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, and I'm from County Dublin in Ireland, and I'll be your host for today's meeting. Our co-hosts today are Nancy J. and Sue L. If you have any questions or any concerns, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts directly by private message in the chat function. And if you can just all please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during the workshop. It makes it run much, much smoother. Um, and in order that we can all be present with you, each other today, we ask that you refrain from making use of the chat function for the duration of the workshop. We will open up the chat box again when Harlan goes to Q&A, so you'll have lots of time there to post um, any numbers that you want to. And we'll add additional time at the end of the workshop in order to exchange numbers for sponsorship, fellowship and outreach. So please do stay with us um, for that. And over to Harlan G. Good morning, Harlan. Oh, good morning, Maria, and thank you very much. Uh, just to throw it out there, we are toying with the idea because on November the 6th, which we will not be meeting that day, I'm going to Chicago to go to a wedding, so I will not be doing this that day. Uh, we're toying with the idea of me starting these one hour later on Saturdays. The only ones then that would be affected would be people in Arizona, but that means everyone else would stay the same. And the Sunday through Thursday meetings uh, will stay the same only if you're in Arizona. If that's confusing, I'll go over it real quickly. The Saturday meeting is different from Sunday through Thursday. It's different. It's the big book study rather than the regular meetings. The regular meetings will not change, but if you don't live in Arizona, those meetings will be one hour earlier. But the Saturday meetings, if I start one hour later, will stay the same no matter where you are, unless you're in Arizona. So if that's confusing, stick around till after the meeting. It's really not very complicated at all. It's really, really simple. The nighttime meetings stay the same time unless you don't live in Arizona and the Saturday morning meetings, they will not, they will not change at all unless you live in Arizona. Very, very simple. It's very straightforward and it shouldn't be confusing at all. It's a beautiful, beautiful fall day here. It's about, let me see here, it is 75 degrees. The nearest cloud is somewhere out over Nevada. Uh, and it is just a gorgeous, gorgeous day here in the desert. It's cool, the humidity is shoe size low and it's just beautiful. I hope it's that beautiful wherever you may be. We have a lot to discuss this morning. Now, um, we're gonna start on page 156 and um, we're gonna start out on the paragraph, one morning he took the bull by the horns. So that's page 156, one morning he took the bull by the horns. And while you're getting to that, while you're getting to that page, I'm going to sort of bring you back up to speed. And we have been talking about the original visit that Bill took to Akron, Ohio. And Akron, Ohio is just a little south of Cleveland, Ohio. It is Tire Town. Goodrich is there, Goodyear is there, and Firestone is there. And Harvey Firestone, who was the chairman of the board of Firestone Rubber Company, he used to pay money to have Oxford Group ministers, Oxford Group preachers come through his town in Akron. He had an alcoholic son. We do not know whether that son ever recovered from his alcoholism. We have no evidence that he ever came into AA at all whatsoever. So we do not have any information about what may or may not have happened to Harvey Firestone's son. Um, but what we do know is that a couple of the people that came to Oxford group meetings frequently were uh, Henrietta Cyberling, the daughter-in-law of the chairman of the board 
of the Goodyear Tire Company, the Goodyear Rubber Company, and also Ann and Bob Smith were pretty regular attendees at the Oxford group meetings, but Dr. Bob never really found a way to attach what he was hearing at the Oxford group to his own alcoholism. It never really happened that he attached it. And in February of 1935, about three months before the May meeting, uh, Henrietta Cyberling had organized a prayer meeting or a vigil or a sort of an intervention for Dr. Bob. They got together, uh, members of the Oxford group, to pray for a solution to Dr. Bob's drinking. Dr. Bob was well-liked but not well-respected. He was an alcoholic. He was a fall-down drunk. He was, he was just not in good shape. And he was a proctologist. So his practice, it, it wasn't enough that we were in, you know, in the depression. He was a drunk and a lot of people, you know, they didn't want to go to him, but he had some specialties that only a, uh, a, a visit to him would solve. So he had certain skills that no one else in Akron had. So there were people that had to come to him and he did the best that he could. He was, you know, he, he did the best that he could like anyone would. So in May, the day before Mother's Day, I uh, believe the 12th of May, 1935 was a Saturday. And when Henrietta Cyberling got the call from Bill Wilson at the Mayflower Hotel, she was at her house. She was in the Cyberling gatehouse and Bill was at the Mayflower Hotel and he calls her up. Now, just picture this, whether you're female, whether you're male, you get a call from someone you've never met. You get a call from someone you don't know from the front door, and they're telling you that they are a rum hound from New York. I'm a rum hound from New York, and I need somebody to talk to. And I just talked to Reverend Tunks, and he told me that you may know someone who has a problem with alcohol. Now, just, just picture yourself getting this phone call, and instead of hanging up on the person, or instead of saying, what the hell, what kind of prank is this, she says to the guy, well, then come right over, we've been waiting for you. Could you just imagine the faith that Henrietta Cyberling had in God? to attach what happened in February to what was happening in May. And she said, come right over. I'll give you my address and tell the cab driver, I will pay for the taxi once you get here. Just imagine the faith that this woman had in God and in, in the universe and just just put yourself in that position. So here's this rum hound from New York coming over to her house in a cab. She doesn't know this man from, from, from the man in the moon. And here he is. And she's calling Ann Smith to try to get Dr. Bob over there. And Dr. Bob had brought in a plant, a potted plant for, for Mother's Day, which was the next day. And he puts the plant on the table and he's drunk underneath the table. So he's on the floor, he's drunk, the plant is on the table and Henrietta Cyberling is calling on the phone and he's, they're saying, we can't make the call today, Dr. Bob is drunk. So Henrietta extracts a promise from them that they'll talk about this tomorrow and I guess uh, she sent Bill Wilson back to the hotel with the understanding that he would come back out tomorrow, which was Sunday. So let's pick up on page 156, 156, the paragraph at the top of the page that starts with one morning, he took the bull by the horns and set out to tell those he feared what his trouble had been. He found himself surprisingly well-received and learned that many knew of his drinking. Stepping into his car, he made the rounds of people he had hurt. He trembled as he went about, for this might mean ruin, particularly to a person in his line of business. Now, let me bring us back up to speed, which I should have 
finished where I was going before we did the paragraph. I kind of went a little out of order there, but that's okay. I can finish and then you'll get the context and then we'll kind of review what we just read. Now we have this image, if we're not, you know, if we don't haven't studied the history, we kind of get this image that Bob met Bill and Bob got sober right away and the rest is history. Nothing could have been further from the truth. Okay, Dr. Bob met Bill on the 13th of May, 1935, Mother's Day. And in June of 1935, and this was something that Dr. Bob attended every year and he would get full blown boiled as an owl. That means drunk at this thing. It's the convention in Atlantic City, New Jersey of the American Medical Association. Now, Dr. Bob gives a date and it is accepted as AA's birthday. It is accepted as Founders Day, but I'm going to let you in here on a little secret. If the 107 of you besides me will promise not to tell, that date is not accurate at all. That date is inaccurate. If you Google the American Medical Association Convention of 1935, you will find that the convention started on the 10th of June and ended on the 17th of June. So it did not end on the 10th of June so that Dr. Bob would have been home already. It began on the 10th of June. So Dr. Bob, we're going to stick with the dates that are given in the big book because I don't want to confuse you. I don't, you know, I don't want a bunch of questions at the end about the American Medical Association Convention of 1935, as it was 19 years before I was born, I was not there. So I don't know. But what I can tell you is if you Google, Google American Medical Association, convention 1935, you will find that the dates given are not commiserate with what Dr. Bob remembered for the book. He, he, he puts his sobriety date on the 10th and it was really the 17th. So, but let's just stick with his timeline. Dr. Bob, it's a Friday. Dr. Bob is leaving for uh, uh, Atlantic City and he's already drunk. He's leaving by train Friday night, Saturday. He stays there Sunday, stays there for days. He is drunk every single day and he's drunk around the clock. He comes back to Akron on the, he comes back the, the uh, 8th of June comes to Ravenna, Ohio. Ravenna is one of the suburbs of Akron and that's where his secretary slash nurse lived. He comes to Ravenna, Ohio. While in Ravenna, the secretary slash nurse calls Ann Smith and says, I've got Dr. Bob over at my house. He just got off the train with his luggage and he is dead drunk. He is so drunk. He can't even see straight. Bill Wilson drives out to Ravenna to pick up Dr. Bob. Remember, he's been staying at the Smith home in Akron, and he has been staying there, <clears throat> excuse me, because A, he doesn't have the, the fare to go home, and B, he wants to get this thing started. He wants to work with alcoholics, goes out there. And on the 9th of June, Dr. Bob sleeps most of the day. The 10th of June in the morning, he has an operation to perform. I'm glad he wasn't operating on my procto that day because he was shaking like a leaf. He was shaking like a, like a cocker spaniel crapping out a peach pit. And he was not in good shape. And Bill Wilson did something for Dr. Bob that a lot of AA sponsees wish their sponsors would do for them. He popped open a beer and gave Bob a beer so he would settle down his hands so he could perform the operation. He makes a deal with Bob that he will pick him up at the hospital when the surgery is done. Dr. Bob performs the surgery, 
and he is not nowhere to be found until about 11.45 p.m. on the 10th of June. He is walking down Ardmore Street. Bill has concluded to Anne that the beer that was given to Bob triggered the physical allergy and Bob is off to the races again, drinking, drunk, and God knows what. Now, when Bob Smith was presented with the original Oxford Group six-step program, he was afraid that if he went around Akron making amends for being the drunk that he was, that people would find out that he was drunk and they would not go to him as a doctor. What he did not know was that everyone in Akron except Dr. Bob already knew that he was an alcoholic, a drunk. He was the only one in Akron that did not know that he was a drunk but he suspected he was putting something over on everyone else. The six step group, the six steps of the Oxford group program were number one, complete deflation. Number two, dependence and guidance from a higher power. Number three, a moral inventory. Four is confession. Five is restitution. Six is continued work with other alcoholics. Well, that six, that fifth step, that restitution was where Dr. Bob got hung up. And as I've said many times in this, in this um, forum, there are four impediments to God. What, are an, what is an impediment? An impediment is something which slows or stops progress. And in the big book, it's very clear that failure to make these amends, you'll drink again. It's very, very clear. It's a warning. You will drink again. You know, if you hang on to resentments or you hang on to things, you're going to drink. You know, I always say recover, recover, recover. Well, surrender, surrender, surrender. You got to do what's in front of you here. The four impediments are number one, a resentment that you will not let go of. Step four, a secret that you will not tell. Step five, a harmful thrill that you will not stop. Step six and seven and a restitution that you will not make steps eight and nine. They didn't use the word amends in the Oxford group. Oxford group language is restitution. AA language is amends, amends. I have a very funny story to tell you about this. Uh, I'm going back now to about 1979 when the treatment centers in Chicago or anywhere really, but were packed to the rafters and they would have small school buses outside some of the meetings and they would bring the treatment centers people to the rooms. And uh, there was this guy, he was right out of New York City, right out of New York City. And I would bet my life that he was a, a, a connected guy. He was, he was just fit the mold of a connected guy. And this was his very first 12 step meeting of his life. He had never been to a 12 step meeting before in his life. This guy was 400 pounds if he was an ounce. And he's reading the steps because they needed a volunteer to read the steps. So he puts his hand up. He's okay, I'll read the steps. He gets up to the front of the room. See, in those days, we sat theater style. So when you spoke or you read, you went to the front of the room and there was a podium with a big book there. So you read out of that. Uh, and uh, we would read how it works out of the big book at the beginning of the meeting. That was our format in those days. We didn't have formats like you have today. Everything was out of the big book. So he gets up to the front of the room and he starts to read step eight. And then he reads and he stops midway through his step nine. And he says to the room, Jesus Christ, he says, have any of you seen this? And we just cracked. We died laughing. He had never seen anything like that before. And we went, we went ballistically crazy. Anyway, okay, I'm sorry. But anyway, so Dr. Bob did not make his amends. 1145 at night. And this is what the 
this is what the paragraph is talking about because he was so scared he would lose his business. It says at midnight, I'm going to the next paragraph because it explains it better than I. I'm on 156. At midnight, he came home exhausted, but very happy. Note that very happy. He went around making his amends. He had not had a drink since. As we shall see, he now means a great deal to his community and the major liabilities of 30 years of hard drinking have been repaired in four. So by following the steps and abandoning my fears and all my other various thinkings, you know, I'm always thinking and catastrophizing and, oh my God, what if, and what if, and what if, that's me just catastrophizing. If I just do what's in front of me, my life goes infinitely better than when I try to rewrite the program or fit the program into some personal mold. That just does not work. Now, what I want you to pay attention to, and I'm gonna point them out. See, this is a very, very asked question. The most asked question in a vision for you is, may I be heard when the real question should be, can I be heard? Because if it's may I be heard, you're asking permission to be heard. That's the number one asked question on vision is, may I be heard, may I be heard? And the second is, most asked question is, um, what is the difference between recover and recovering? Recovering, you haven't had a spiritual awakening yet, recovered as you did have one. And one of the most asked questions in a vision for you is, where in the big book does it say that we work the steps quickly? So we're going to answer that question for you because, ladies and gentlemen, we are right in the part of the big book that teaches us to work the steps quickly. Andale, schnell. Mucho gusto. We get on with this work. Let's see what it says. And then I'm going to point out some timelines to you that will reinforce what I'm saying here. I think this is going to be educational for a lot of us. I know it will be for, it was for me and still is. But life was not easy for the two friends. Plenty of difficulties presented themselves. Both saw that they must keep spiritually active. One day they called up the head nurse of a local hospital. They explained their need and inquired if she had a first-class alcoholic prospect. Now let's just remember how God-inspired this is. Notice that it does not say that they did other service or that they drove Joe to a meeting or they made coffee or they, they fed the homeless. Those are all wonderful services. They needed someone to talk to. They needed someone to work with. And as we were told in chapter seven, nothing guarantees immunity from drinking like intensive work with other alcoholics. And those other services are good services. They need to be done. Someone has to make the coffee. Someone has to run the Zoom room. Someone has to maintain the website. Someone has to record the meetings and post the recordings on the website. I don't know how to do that. I wouldn't have a clue. I wouldn't have a clue how to do that. I could learn, I'm not ignorant, I'm not stupid, but I don't know how to do it. And it just magically gets done. I don't know how, but somebody has to do those things. But the only thing that's gonna guarantee me immunity from drinking is intensive work with other alcoholics. And that's all through the book. And these two guys with nobody else in the world to lean on came to that conclusion too. Let's continue, and I'm going to point out some timelines that will help, okay? She replied, yes, we've got a corker. He just beaten up a couple of nurses. Goes off his head completely when he's drinking, but he's a grand chap when he's sober, though he's been in here eight times in the last six months. Eight times in six months months, every two and a half, three weeks, he's in the hospital. Understand he was once a well-known lawyer in town. They're talking about Bill Dotson. But just now, 
we've got him strapped down tight. And they're talking about going to see Bill Dotson. And Bill Dotson is alcoholics number three. I changed my background on my uh, Zoom because this very, very famous painting is entitled The Man on the Bed. And it is not, it doesn't look like Bill Dotson. It doesn't look like Bill Wilson. It doesn't look like Dr. Bob. What it is supposed to depict are alcoholics visiting a sick, uh, drunk alcoholic or not drunk, but he's, he's still, you know, he's still drinking. But it was dedicated and inspired by the visit to Bill Dotson. Now, this refers to Bill and Dr. Bob's first visit to AA number three, see the pioneer section. Okay, now, here was a prospect, all right, but by the description, none too promising. Why was he none too promising? Well, they just told you that this is June of 1935. He has already been hospitalized eight times in six months for his alcoholism. He is a chronic low bottom alcoholic. Bill Dotson was from Carlisle, Kentucky. And there are recordings of him. They're hard to hear. They're hard to listen to because they're not well recorded. But he's got this thick Kentucky accent. Don't picture Forrest Gump in your mouth, in your mind, because his accent sounds nothing like Forrest Gump. Nothing. It's a different, it's a completely different accent. And he says, these two fellers came in my room and they were smiling. And I didn't know what was so funny like that. Very different from like an Alabama accent. It's not the same at all. And he's talking about these guys coming in his room and you could sort of hear it, but you can hear as he's remembering when you listen to it, I hope you get your hands on it. You can hear the joy in his voice for this was the first time that he could grab onto hope. All right, let's continue and let's keep remembering some things about timelines that are so important. Here was a prospect, all right, but by the description, none too promising. Remember, at first, this was all low bottom guys. They weren't encountering the 30-year-olds and the 20-year-olds or the 15-year-olds that were nudged by the judge or high-bottom alcoholics. These guys were low-bottom drunks. The use of spiritual principles in such cases was not so well understood as it is now. What are the spiritual principles? The spiritual principles are the steps. Today, you've got people that say, well, the principle of this is honesty and the principle of that is, is perseverance and the principle of that is faith. That's not what they're referring to. All that stuff came about decades later. When he talks about the spiritual principles, he's talking about the steps. Top of 157, such cases were not so well understood as it is now. But one of the friends said, put him in a private room, we'll be down. Now, the next sentence is a very uh, important sentence because it's going to answer another question that's asked on a vision for you. And all of us have had this question. <clears throat> How long do you have to be abstinent before you can start working the steps? Well, let's let the book answer that one. Two days later, not two weeks, not two months, not two minutes, two days later, what does Dr. Silkworth tell us? Dr. Silkworth tells us that you must be free of the physical craving before spiritual measures can be uh, of maximum uh, effectiveness. What, is he, what does Dr. Silkworth also tell us? That you have to be free of the cravings. He also says the only remedy we have to suggest is entire abstinence. What does Bill Wilson tell us in his story? He says he, he came into the hospital and he was separated from alcohol for the last time. I hear people asking me this question all the time. Can I still work the steps while I'm eating? And the answer is no, not if you wanna have a spiritual awakening. Because if you're still eating M&Ms, you don't need God. You're going to get the effect. 
from the M&Ms. The M&Ms are going to level you out. They're going to give you that effect. They're going to take care of your fear, your anger, your unrequited love, your selfishness, your dishonesty, your guilt, your shame, and your remorse. M&Ms took care of those things for me for a long period of time in my life, and they worked like a charm. M&Ms work. The only problem is they have death-defying side effects and they will kill me and they will make it so that I cannot get in and out of a car. They will make it so that I cannot get on and off a couch. They will make it so that I piss in my pants and they will make it so that I cannot live. I will not have clothes to fit and the doctors will be screaming at me and I will die years before I could have. And with the steps, I can not only live, but I can live the fullest life possible. The people that came out of concentration camps when I was a child told me, live until you die. I can't live a maximum life. Remember that our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. I cannot live a life of maximum benefit to anyone except the Mars Candy Company and the retailer that sells me the M&Ms if I'm eating candy. I am not of maximum service to anyone when I'm under the influence of the food. I must be free of the food. For how long do I need to be free of the food? I need to be free of the food for two days. A future fellow of Alcoholics Anonymous stared glassily at the strangers beside the bed, his bed. Who are you fellows and why this private room? I was always in a ward before. He was scared that he was dying and that they were doctors coming to tell him that he was dying. He had never seen them before. He did not know them. He was amazed at how tall they were. Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson were both over six feet tall. And in those days, people were not generally as tall and big as they are today. You know, the original Model A Ford that came out in the 1910s, 19-teens, it was designed for a 150-pound man, five foot seven or less. So it was not, people were just not that big, but Dr. Bob and Bill were both over six feet tall. And he believed, Bill Dotson did, that these were doctors from the hospital telling him that he was going to die. Let's continue. Said one of the visitors, we're giving you a treatment for alcoholism. Hopelessness was written large on the man's face as he replied, oh, but that's no use. Nothing would fix me. I'm a goner. For, I'm a goner. The last three times I got drunk on the way home from here, I'm afraid to go out the door. I can't understand it. And I was a goner too. Not only did I not want to live, I saw no purpose to living. I wanted to die so desperately. And I thank God every day of my life that he did not grant my wish for an instant sudden death, a painless death. Because from the time I was a teenager, I was emasculated by this disease. I was humiliated by this disease. I was an object of ridicule. When I would leave the house, and go into a public place like a shopping center or a store, children would laugh at me. People would say rude things to me. I was an object of ridicule. People would put their hands on me a lot. They would slap my stomach or slap my ass. And they would say, when's the baby hippo do? When's the baby elephant do? How long have you been pregnant? Are you the first man that ever got pregnant? Uh, who impregnated you, a, a gorilla? You know, things like that. Or they would say things to me like, do you know how fat you are or something like that? And uh, on more than one occasion, um, people would take food off my table, my 
food off where I was eating and they would give it to the bus boy and say, this man is enormous. He's as big as a house. He doesn't need to eat this. And I didn't even know them. I had to pretend that it didn't bother me, but it did. I went on my first date with a girl. I was 35 years old. I was emasculated by this disease, not only physically, I was emotionally, I was mentally emasculated by this disease. I saw no point to life and I wanted to die desperately. And the person, the one that said, we're giving you a treatment for alcoholism was not Dr. Bob, it was Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson was the, he was the hustler. He was the more aggressive one. And Dr. Bob wanted to find out something that made him a far better sponsor. Do you want a treatment for alcoholism? Do you want to get sober? Of the original 100, 66% got sober in Akron and 33 got sober in New York. Why? What was the biggest difference? Bill was going to sober you up whether you wanted to be sober or not. And that doesn't work. And Dr. Bob, if you displayed to him unwillingness or a disinterest in this, he left you the hell alone. And that's just part of what made him a much better sponsor. Dr. Bob was not this aggressive huckster that Bill was. See, Bill and Hank were kindred spirits. Hank Parkhurst. They, they, let's monetize this thing, man. Let's get this thing in front of the public and let's open up a chain of hospitals and let's get the missionaries out there and let's get this thing going and we're going to make a fortune. And Dr. Bob is thinking, are you crazy? That's going to ruin this. And, and, and Bill and Hank are, I mean, I'm talking later, way later. I'm not talking now. I'm talking way later. They're looking at him like he's cuckoo. Well, he wasn't cuckoo, was he? He wasn't cuckoo. Let's see where we go. Let's go back to 1935 because I'm getting ahead of myself here. For an hour, the two friends told him about their drinking experiences over and over. He would say, that's me. That's me. I drink like that. The new person will not remember necessarily anything you tell them. They'll remember what they see and they'll remember how you made them feel. They will not remember much of the details of what you're saying to them. And what is the way to make them feel like coming back? There's two things that are very important. The shortest distance between two human beings is a straight laugh. Get them laughing a little bit. There's not real funny stories about eating. See, drinking has a certain humor to it. There's all kinds of stories about, yeah, I went here and I got drunk and I was at a party and I did this and I did that. Some of that stuff is pretty funny. But when it comes to eating, I don't know that there's a lot of humor involved. At least there wasn't for me. I'll speak for myself. There wasn't a lot of funny stories. I couldn't tell you funny stories about my eating escapades. If I was asked, if I was put on the spot, I don't know that I have even one. None of my stories ends up funny. But what I can tell you is they're not looking for information right now. They're looking for identification. There's a huge difference between information and identification. And for the first time in Bob's life, when he heard Bill Wilson, he identified with Bill. For the first time in Bill Dotson's life, he is identifying with Dr. Bob and identifying with Bill Wilson. And through this identification, he is feeling infinitely more comfortable. Every one of the 130 people on this line right now has probably been to Weight Watchers, Nutrisystems, uh, Tops, whatever it is. 
and they stand there at the meeting. And I'm not knocking these things. These things are fantastic. They never helped somebody like me because there was no solution. But we all hear the lectures and we all hear the people and they're going to get up there and they're going to say, do this. And when you think about eating, think about whatever, whatever it is. But there's no identification for the compulsive overeater. I'm not knocking these pay and way places. I, I'm not. It's not up to me to do that. And I'm not going to do it. I'm not for them. I'm not against them. I've got no opinion. But when it comes to this disease, you need identification. And that's what Bill Dotson is getting, identification. Now, I also want to point out something that I promised you I would point out. So now I'm going to make good on my promise. We're going to find out that this conversation with Bill Dotson is going to take place on the 26th of June, 1935. Dr. Bob got sober at, supposedly on the 10th of June, 1935. That is 16 days after he gets sober, he's out there making 12-step calls. This is a very clear indication, boys and girls, that we work the steps quickly, 16 days after Dr. Bob gets sober and he comes down Ardmore Street on the 10th of June, 1935, he is working step 12, 16 days, Not, and it's actually less because we know that there's a one week lapse between what Bob writes and the actual end of the convention. But let's just go with the dates that are given us, okay? 16 days. How many people 16 days after they first get sober are making 12-step calls? The answer, not enough, not enough. And that's why I take people through the steps in eight, nine days. I don't let them lollygag like that. I don't, you know, I just don't let them lollygag. <sighs> we move quickly. Up one chapter, down the next. Up one chapter, down the next. And I give three hours for step four. That's all they get, three hours. If you can't finish it in three hours, that means you don't want to because it's really not that complicated of a situation. 16 days. Note the timeline. So the next time somebody asks the question, where in the big book does it state that we work the steps quickly, like your hair's on fire? Here is where it is in the chapter of vision for you. The timelines are the, the timelines are the window into what's going on. The man in the bed was told of the acute poisoning from which he suffered. They are explaining to him the physical allergy how it deteriorates the body of an alcoholic and warps his mind. There was much talk about the mental state preceding the first drink. They're telling him about the mental twist. I am allergic to chocolate. Every time I eat chocolate, I break out in blubber. Every time I eat chocolate, I get fatter and fatter and further away from God and closer to death. But I want that chocolate because the mind is looking for an effect. It's looking for a solution to the pain of guilt, shame, remorse, happiness, the buildup of emotions, anger, fear, jealousy, lust. My mind is looking for some solution to those problems. And the solution has always been in food. Nothing makes me feel as good as fast as Oreo cookies. Nothing. The steps do slowly for me what the food does instantly. But the effect of the food is about nine seconds. And the effect of the steps is a lifetime. And I've never been to the cardiologist and have him say to me, Harlan, I don't think you should be sponsoring so many people. Harlan, I don't think you should be doing so many 10 steps. I don't think you should be going to so many meetings. He's never said that to me in my life, but they have begged me not to eat so many damn Doritos. They have said to me, you're dying, you're dying, you're dying, you're killing yourself. Let's continue. We work the steps quickly. 
Yes, that's me, said the sick man, the very image. I'm on page 157, three quarters of the way down. You fellas know your stuff all right, but I don't see what good it'll do. You fellas are somebody I was once, but I'm a nobody now. From what you tell me, I know more than ever I can't stop. See, once it was explained to me that this is an illness, I felt the same way. Well, now what's the use if I can't stop because of the allergy and I can't stay stopped because of the mental twist? I'm a goner. You're right. So let's go to Kentucky Fried Chicken and let's just finish the damn job. Well, there's more. Said the future fellow anonymous, damn little to laugh about what that I can see because they're laughing because they know that if he'll just do what they did, he won't want the liquor, but he's never in his adult life. Actually, uh, Bill Dotson started drinking on his father's farm when he was just eight years old. He got his hands on some cider, hard cider. And it was this time of year and his father was a farmer in Kentucky. And he hired a bunch of people to come help him with the harvest. And they had some hard cider in the barn and he got his hands on it. And he was just a child and he got drunk and they had to, they had to carry him in the house. And that was the first time he ever got drunk was on the hard cider that the uh, workers brought with them to help his father with the harvest. And uh, that was his first drunk. He was not even 10 years old yet. The two friends spoke of their spiritual experience and told him about the course of action they carried out. So they're telling him about the steps before he was sober. No, after he was sober, how long was he sober? Two days, two days. He interrupted. I used to be strong for the church, but that won't fix it. I prayed to God on hangover mornings and sworn I'd never touch another drop, but by nine o'clock, I'd be boiled as an owl. And how many times did I wake up in the morning swearing to God that I was not going to eat M&Ms that day? I was not going to eat Doritos that day. And my car just magically took me to the store where I got sacks of M&Ms and bags of Doritos. And it was as if I was taken over by some spirit, some ghost. It was as if my mind and body were not my own because the disease is so strong in me that it propelled me to eat food that I knew was killing me and choking me off from life. I did things to myself I would never have done to you. And if I did those things to you, they would put me in prison. Because this disease took me to places that you wouldn't take your worst enemy to. If I just beat up your mother with brass knuckles, you would be more merciful to me than this disease was. It brought me to places that I never, ever want to go to again. And with the working of the steps, I don't have to. Top of 158. Next day found the prospect more receptive. He had been thinking it over. Maybe you're right. He said, God ought to be able to do anything. Then he added, he sure didn't do much for me when I was trying to fight this booze racket alone on my own. I cannot stay out of the food. With God's help, I can. On the third day, not the third month, not the third year. He's already at step three that we know of today. On the third day, the lawyer gave his life to the care and direction of his creator. He said he was perfectly willing to do anything necessary. What did he do? He was doing four through 12. How do you turn your will and life over to God? By doing the third step prayer? Hell no. You turn your will and life over to God. Your will is your thinking. Your life is your actions by doing steps four through 12 every day for the rest of your life. And what is the best mechanism to do that? 10, 11, and 12, 10, 11, and 12, 10, 11, and 12. Continue, improve, and practice. Continue, improve, and practice. His wife came, his wife was also named Henrietta, just like Henrietta Cyberling, Henrietta Dotson. That's a name you don't hear very much anymore. My mother's name was Virginia. 
I don't think I've run into a Virginia in, in 50 years. I don't think I've seen one person named Virginia in, in 50 years or more. You, there are certain names that just fall out of favor. And I guess it's like, like clothing or whatever, you know, the Kathy's, the Debbie's, the, the Barbara's, the Cindy's, the Ann's, that's like forever, you know, Maria, Mary, whatever, that's like forever. But certain names, I guess, go in and out, I guess, I don't know. Why am I talking about names? I'm sorry. Some of my stuff is just Narishkeit. I'm sorry. Let's continue. <laughs> okay. Sometimes I have to laugh at myself. My, my brain just doesn't work the way it should. His wife came scarcely daring to be hopeful, though she thought she saw something different about her husband already. He had begun to have a spiritual experience. Three days ago, he was drunk. Two days of sobriety, he started working the steps. On the 27th of, um, of 19, 27th of June, he's completing his step work. He's, gonna, he's moving on with it. Let's, let's look at those timelines. And let's look at those timelines because this is a textbook. This is not a storybook about poor Bill Dotson and how he moved from Kentucky to Akron, Ohio to go to law school in Ohio. And he, and he found a job there and he also became a city councilman. And in and, and his first election, after he got sober, he lost the election because they threw his alcoholism at him like a knife and he lost the election and he remains sober. He will die in 1954 with 19 years of sobriety. And he will become a stalwart member of the AA community in Akron, Ohio. He will become a valued member of Alcoholics Anonymous group number one. You know that meetings have numbers. Meetings are assigned numbers. And the King's School meeting in Akron, Ohio, which later moved to a church, is meeting number 00001. Pretty cool, huh? And he became one of the first members, or the first other than Bob and Bill, members of that meeting and he helped newcomers throughout the remaining years of his life he wasn't a loud gregarious guy like bill and hank and he wasn't you know he wasn't a promoter of himself and he didn't though he wasn't a big circuit speaker he was just there he was just there sober and there and working his program and doing his thing. And people saw him and they knew that if he could get sober, then they probably could too, because he beat up nurses and he was hospitalized umpteen times. And in the year 1935, the year he finally got sober, he was hospitalized eight times in six months. How would you like to carry the guilt and the shame of beating up nurses with you and not drink? But he did it. That afternoon, he put on his clothes and walked from the hospital a free man. He entered a political campaign, making speeches, frequenting men's gatherings, gathering places of all sorts, often staying up all night. He lost the race by only a narrow margin, but he had found God and in finding God had found himself. That was in June, 1935. Dr. Bob will get sober June the 10th. Bill Dotson will get sober June 26th, 1935. What's going to happen to Bill Dotson is what happened to Dr. Bob. Again, let's look at timelines. That means you work the steps quickly. Let's continue. He never drank again. 
he too has become a respected and useful member of his community. He has helped other men recover and is a power in the church from, where, from which he was long absent. So he will return to the church. He will return to serving God. So you see, there were three alcoholics in that town, Bill Dotson, Bill Wilson, and Dr. Bob Smith, and who now felt that they had to give to others what they had found or be sunk. After several failures to find others, a fourth turned up. This will be Ernie Galbraith. He came through an acquaintance and had heard the good news. The acquaintance was his parents. His parents were attending the Oxford group meetings, the Galbraiths, and they heard what was going on with, with these three guys. And they had a son, Ernie, and Ernie would later marry Dr. Bob's daughter. Dr. Bob's daughter will marry Ernie Galbraith. And it's, Dr. Bob said at the wedding, it's very hard to give your daughter over to somebody whose fourth step you've heard. He says, it's a very difficult thing to do. And uh, he will get drunk again. Uh, his story is in the first edition of the big book. His story is the seven-month slip, and it was pulled after the first edition, Ernie Galbraith. He was a younger guy. I think he was like in his 30s or 40s, something like that. He was very exceptionally young. You know, Bill and Bob were, were older. Um, Bob was about, uh, I think it was 14 years older than Bill. But anyway, he proved to be a devil-may-care young fellow whose parents could not make out whether he wanted to stop drinking or not. They were deeply religious people. I just told you they went to Oxford group meetings, much shocked by their son's refusal to have anything to do with the church. He suffered horribly from his sprees, but it seemed as if nothing could be done for him. He consented, however, to go to the hospital where he occupied the very room recently vacated by the lawyer. He had three visitors. How many visitors did he have? Three. Three. This is July of 1935. Bill Dotson will get sober on June the 26th, 1935. And by July, what is he doing? He's making a 12-step call, isn't he? He didn't make a 12-step call two years after getting sober. He made it right away. And he's going with these guys to see if they can sober up Ernie Galbraith? No to see if they can stay sober themselves. If Ernie got sober, all the better. All the better, that would be fantastic. But he's, Ernie's not gonna stay sober, but they did. Because you don't get this program by, by uh, absorbing spiritual information. You get this program by transmitting spiritual information. I'm going to say that again, because it's so important. You will not get this program by absorbing spiritual information. You could read this. You could watch films about how to do the fourth step and film how to make an amends. You will not get this program by absorbing spiritual information. You get this program by transmitting spiritual information. What does that mean? You have to sponsor. You have to help others. And if you don't do that, you won't be able to keep what you have. And there are many people who've been around these rooms for years some of them don't sponsor and they struggle as a result of it. Boy, do they struggle. And it's very, very important that we remember you will not get this program by absorbing spiritual information. You will get this program by transmitting spiritual information. Let's do this next paragraph here. He had three visitors. After a bit, he said, the way you fellas put this spiritual stuff makes sense. I'm ready to do business. I guess the old folks were right after all. So one more was added to the fellowship. Very, very important that we see these timelines. These timelines are critical. That there is something that we do quickly 
and we are not afraid to get out there and we are not afraid to get our hands dirty. It's not about results. It's not about who gets sober and who doesn't. It's about us staying sober. It's all the better if we can get them so, well, we can't get anyone sober. If they get sober with God's help, we are just a conduit of information. No one is going to think a thing of you if the person fails. No one is going to think, oh my God, you must be a stupid idiot because Joe, you were sponsoring Joe and Joe got, Joe went back out and got drunk. No one's going to think that. Just do the best you can to take them through the book. I've done a lot of work here in this forum and on vision, on sponsoring. If you're unsure of how to do it, ask people that are doing it. Listen to some of my podcasts on chapter seven, eight, and nine. And uh, I think it'll help quite a bit, seven, eight, nine, and 10. Those are all chapters that will help you with your sponsorship. Now, I before we transcend or trans transcend, I guess. Yeah. Into questions and answers. Remember that on the, we are meeting here next week. We will not be meeting here on the 6th of November. I'm going home to Chicago for a wedding on the uh, 6th of November. So we will not be meeting. And then the time is going to change and we'll kind of keep you posted next week as to what is decided, whether it's going to be the same time, unless you're in Arizona or an hour earlier or later or what, whatever that may be. We're actually, th- I was thinking of doing it an hour earlier and now we're thinking we're going to do it an hour later in Arizona so that everyone else in the world, it'll be on the same time. It'll be on exactly the same time. So I'll just eat lunch an hour later, which is fine. I'm sure I'll survive. Okay. If you asked a question last week, step back and let people who have not asked a question last week kind of move to the front. 